everyone. Welcome to Everyman BJJ, a weekly show covering MMA and BJJ news and training tips. Some of the morning. spontaneous stuff, like wait, we're live. Hey, what's up, Noah? Good morning. <laughs> there, you wanted to go live? We're live. <laughs> this is the Everyman BJJ special morning edition. I was just thinking, I was like, because you were, I was like, wait, let me get the sleep out of my eyes. And you're like, oh, we're live. You hit the button and we're going. I thought, <laughs> well, this is a case where, where this is a case where adversity can become opportunity because if you get me with the sleep on my eye and then we have a good conversation and maybe there's some laughing. Then that becomes blooper. That becomes every man BJJ blooper material, right? Twenty uh-huh. years from now, and so then it's good. You know, we win either way. So that's good. good. Morning, yeah, my right. friend. Um, I honestly, this is I have no idea what we're talking about today. But but in some ways, the journalist in me, right? Journalist in newsrooms, TV stations. Um. I love the randomness of, of, of things. I love to just stumble upon a good conversation. So this is right down my bat. Let's go, Noah. Well, well, no, no. I, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but the weigh-ins were just like were two hours ago. And um, I, I haven't got to uh, jump in and look at uh, – look and see, see if uh, anyone missed weight. Oh, yeah, we got, we got some missed weights. Um, I now let me take a step back, compose myself. It is morning to me. Um, I did jump up out of bed and be like, "Oh, I got to do a podcast this morning." But so wait, I knew that we need to talk. You some, you're saying what you said. We ha- we. I'm going to quote you. We, ooh, we got some missed weights. So that implies that not only one fighter, but that there were a multitude, at least two fighters that that, that missed weight. I find that uh, that would be surprising to me. Well, yeah, I need to step back and to say this. Uh, so there's a huge fight weekend here in front of us. Yeah. And, and, you know, that just to bring everyone along, and if you're seeing this in the future, um, UFC 253, uh, Israel Adesanya versus Paulo Costa, both undefeated fighters. If you haven't seen, if you haven't seen the workup for this, this is wild. Uh, Adesanya was... Uh, um, was a pound under at 184, and Costa was the first to weigh in during the two-hour window and was 185, not a hair wait, more. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're telling me Costa missed weight? No, he made it 185 right on those. Okay, I, I'm, I, I'm I know, I no, no. Here, it, it's it's and, the and Zubera. By the, way, the reason I made that mistake, okay, this is the. This will be, you're going to love this because you read all those books and you read all those books about mindset and psychology. I kind of am more of the in the trenches learner on that. That's kind of my rabbit hole, the mindset, the resilience, the way the human brain works. But this is what's interesting about that. So years ago, when I was working for UFC, I covered the WEC, right? World Extreme Cage Fighting, which was one of their companies they owned, which was more focused on the lighter weights because there was a time people might remember the UFC was only 155 to heavyweight, right? The UFC didn't cover the 145ers, the 135, 135 pounders. It also didn't cover some, you know, some of the a weight class 125 and the and the women, right? We have some smaller women. We have women that are 115, 125. So there were a bunch of weights it didn't cover because they didn't think there was the bandwidth. They didn't think there was the popularity. They thought it would be 
too many champions, too much alphabet soup for the for the consumer to care for at the time. So I'm covering World Extreme Cage Fighting, which many of you know was an awesome outfit, even though the production wasn't the same quality as the UFC. So the UFC production, people who've never been to a live show don't realize how long, how much effort they put in to refining that production from the sound that hits you if you're close to the cage. They have it down, so they've mastered the bass that hits you, the way the music hits you. They've mastered the the, the lighting. They've mastered what they do with the lighting if they turn the lights down before a main event or a walkout. They, they've got the whole show down, but World Extreme Cage Fighting didn't have a much lower budget. It was very more cliche, like, yeah, ho-hum, cookie cutter, but it had great fights. But anyway, there happened to be a fight where – there was a guy named Paulo Coelho. Paul, and this is interesting because this has parallels to this fight. And this shows you how this, our subconscious brain works. So years ago, Paulo Coelho was supposed to fight Chael Sonnen. This is back when no one, relatively no one knew who Chael Sonnen was. I had the privilege of interviewing Chael Sonnen for World Extreme Cage Fighting. Right? I interviewed him a multitude of times. And I wrote some stories on him. I fed the material about Chael to the broadcast team, right? So some of what I'd find out, I'd give to the broadcast team. I'd give to the video guys, interview him to hype the fight. And so I had discovered then, like, wow, this Chael Sonnen guy is something special. He's a great interview. He's a great story. He's a, he's a quote a minute. And back then, Chael Sonnen did not have the over-the-top shtick, the over-the-top persona. He was a lot more humble, and he was just sort of this guy, very smart, very thoughtful. But he would be like, "Well, Frank, you know, uh, um, you know, when when I was growing up and I was wrestling, I was doing this, and and it really didn't, you know. So, you know, I, I really don't know the answer to that. I'm like, Chael, why do you tap like you you talk bad about jujitsu, right? Because even jujitsu doesn't work, or whatever. You talk so bad about jujitsu, and all your losses, you're winning all of your fights. This is the pattern." This was the pattern in Chael Sonnen fights. This is still the pattern in, in most the, the vast majority of Chael Sonnen fights. He's winning the fight. At that time, back in WEC, this is 2008, 2009, the guy had like 30, 40 fights. And if, if I'm remembering correctly, may, may, maybe 30 fights or so. And, and almost every fight, literally almost every fight, Chael would be winning the fight. He was never in a fight back then. I think maybe there had been one, but like, Eight or nine of his losses were like, Chael is winning the fight. And then the other fighter catches Chael in a submission. A jiu-jitsu <laughs> submission, you, right? And he would still go, jiu-jitsu doesn't work, you know, that sort of that. You know what you do to a, you know, a black belt? You punch him in the mouth. One time he becomes a brown belt. You punch him in the mouth again, he becomes a purple belt. And he was doing that partly as a shtick. When he got closer to the Anderson Silva fight, he did even more of that, right? He really was going over the top with, but it was interesting. It's like, chill. Do you realize if you spent more time on the jujitsu, you might be close to undefeated. You might have one loss, right? So anyway, I, you know, interviewing Chael at the time, really, I, I came to like him. The person that he that he represents now, which I do think is an element, an alternative ego uh, of him, and I think it's genuine. But I think he also realized the marketability, and he was getting later in his years. And he won a string of fights when they went to the UFC. And, and, and in my opinion, having seen the evolution of Chael, um, part of this is he realized people like it. And, and this is how I'm going to get paid. And I'm an aging athlete. 
I don't have many more paydays I have. And so I personally believe that that's the way Chael Sonnen thinks. Chael Sonnen, every time I see him, we have really good conversation. He's very warm. He's the exact opposite of that persona, truly. Very nice guy, very approachable. So anyway, much like Joe Rogan. But anyway, he's fighting a guy back then at WEC for the WEC title, a world title, against a guy named Paulo Coelho, a Brazilian, who happens to be like the first coming of Paulo Costa. Like this is Paulo Costa before Paulo Costa. This is a very, like, very, just a little brick house, like a brick built like a, a like a, like a brick house, built like a fire hydrant, right? Tries to walk through anything just impervious to pain. He's got a Mike Tyson tattoo on him because he's kind of got that, just that aura that's coming off of him, which is I'm just, I'm just a, 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 a you know, I'm just a, a, a maniac. Like I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to take you out. I'm coming to take your soul. So Paulo Coelho, Paulo Coelho was so good back then and so impressive and so intimidating that Many pound-for-pound pound rankings had him ranked number two behind only Anderson Silva, who at the time was like God's gift to all of fighting, right? Arguably the best fighter in the world at any weight class was Anderson Silva. Paulo um, Coelho back then from Brazil was considered number two, and there were some whisperings that he would actually beat Anderson Silva, that he would be a bad matchup. Now, flat, fast forward to now, you have a very skinny long, you know, uh, you know, slow twitch muscle. He got fast twitch too, but he's got those, he's got that, that interesting combination of fast twitch, slow twitch thing going. We don't see as, as many skinny guys like that with that fast twitch power. And he's so precise. We have Israel Adesanya and we have the fire hydrant, number one challenger, unbeaten Costa. And so the reason I thought that, that, that he had made missed weight is because the most egregious weight that weight, uh, overweight athlete I've ever seen was Paulo Coelho showed up to the this fight his title fight with Chael Sonnen and he showed up like 11 pounds over oh my to the gosh. title fight like i think it was 9 10 11 pounds over he showed up and it was like wow like where's his head and it wind up being because of that and i think they should change this rule Noah because Coelho was overweight so egregiously, like head-scratchingly egregiously. It became a non-title fight, and Chael Sonnen actually won that fight. He won the fight. He didn't get the title. And Chael Sonnen had told me before the fight, hey, I made a dying – Frank, I literally made a dying wish to my dad that I will win a world title for you. I made a wish to my dad on his deathbed. Right? He said that before – he was this over the top WWE, you know, stole a page from world, Profe you know, world uh, wrestling, world professional wrestling federation, whatever. Before he was even doing that shit, he said it sincerely. I made a dying wish to my dad. He didn't win the world title that night because Paulo Coelho was 11 overweight. What's interesting. One final thing. No, I apologize to be so, so long winded. So that's why I had this in the back of my head, right? When I'm, Costa Coelho, my brain early in the morning is playing a trick on me. Like, wait, another guy's 10 pounds overweight for a title fight. So crazy. But yeah, and that makes sense. Interesting. And the reason that that, that that weight loss for people out there listening, and we could say this about many sports, Noah, because you've done finance, you do a lot of financial analysis, among other things. You do many things well 
but you do financial analysis well and forensic accounting, you do it well. So you know how to pour through the numbers because we see, as they say in business, you know, or the, the lawyers say, you can make, the lawyers say, look, you can make a, a, um, a, a stat do anything, a statistic do anything. You can make, you can manipulate data. People can make numbers do make, you know, do weird things. What's interesting is there's some numbers that don't lie, right? Some numbers don't lie though. Some data can't be manipulated. When a fighter shows up, it's, the, it's one of the cardinal sins of the fight sports. Thy shall make weight. You have to make weight. It's so important. He will say, well, it's not professional. Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper as to what it means when a fighter is overweight, especially at the highest level, when you're talking about a world championship. If someone showed up four pounds over, right, that doesn't seem like a big deal to a lot of people out there, right? LeBron James doesn't have to show up on the scale before the NBA, you know, whatever, Western Finals, and then he doesn't have to do that. Tom Brady, when he was winning, he's in nine Super Bowls, six Super Bowl titles, six rings, love Tom Brady, mad respect. He doesn't have to make weight and worry about his weight cut and, and distilled water tricks and, and Epsom salt baths and, and, you know, coconut water, uh, you know, rejuvenations and watermelon water, rehydration. He doesn't have to worry about that or what, or what, uh, Mike Brown used to, and, and Gleason Tebow, Gleason Tebow, who would be 40 pounds heavier the night after the fight, 40 pounds heavier. Hey, guys like him and Mike Brown, uh, an American top team, would wake up every three hours. They were so intent to gain weight back overnight. They were waking themselves up the night before the fight. No, so they'd make weight. They would wake themselves up every three hours, eat, drink, go back to bed. Wake yourself up three hours later. Long clock goes off, eat, drink, go back to bed. That's how some of them, like Gleason Tebow, could be 40 pounds heavier than night. Now, there was also back then, there was the, um, I think they've since outlawed it, but there was the rehydration. People were getting the IV. Fighters were getting the IV. That IV could bring them back and help them perform. I believe, by and large, that's outlawed unless you're in a medical emergency. But my point is this, with the, with the, the, the sin. When you have fighters showing up overweight, that is usually, it is usually, almost always a mental thing. It is not a physical thing. You will hear the fighter say, well, the weight just didn't want to come off. Or their camp will say that afterwards. Well, the weight just didn't want, we were in the sauna and of course it got dangerous because we have seen a few deaths, not in UFC, but in other smaller promotions, we've seen a few deaths with, um, with the weight cuts, we saw a Brazilian, Andre Pedaneros had a fight. There have been a couple. It's very dangerous for the fighter on many levels when there's a dangerous weight cut because not only can they die in the weight cut, it happens very rarely, but we have seen it. But also, like in boxing, when you are struggling with that weight cut, and most of the time the fighters the next day don't rehydrate very well. So they're still very underhydrated the next day, even when they make the weight. And that is very bad for the brain because a lot of the protectiveness of the brain, right? Sort of the jelly, when the brain gets hit, it's, it's rattling around in there, right? And that, and that over time can cause damage. Well, when you have less water in the body, when you're severely underhydrated and you don't have the right hydration, even though you're coherent, you can talk, you can move, but you're still subhydrated, that is very bad for the brain, especially a brain being punched because you have less water, which is less protectiveness there when it takes blows water in your brain is among you know just like your skull is one of the things 
that can give your brain a little extra protection. So you'll see some fighters, if they have a bad weight cut, I've seen it, where their chin's not the same. It's not just because they're puncher, their chin's not the same. So when a fighter is overweight, especially at a title level, it is a really, like, usually that fighter's going to lose because it's a sign of a lot of other things. It's a, it's a harbinger of a lot of other things that went wrong in camp. Poor preparation, basically. It is a sign of poor preparation. It is a sign of something, you, a lot of times mental. It also means, Noah, that this fighter, I'm sorry to be long-winded, but this is good stuff and it's very important. It also means that this fighter, um, instead of being able to focus on the fight and be relaxed and be poised and conserve your energy, had to move a mountain and put and distract themselves with the weight cut. Right. So rather than be you usually want to have the calm, the poise before the storm in the day or two or three before the fight, the whole week, the more relaxed you can be, the more focused you can be. The weight cut distracts you. It can even affect you on an adrenal level. It can drain the adrenals because now you're so worried. You're so stressed about making the weight and your focus is not where it should be. And it's also robbing you of precious energy. So it is a big deal when a fighter is even a pound or two pounds or three pounds or four pounds over. In the case of Paulo Coelho, like 10 pounds. It's a big deal. But it's it, and, and a lot of times I've seen the fight that the, the fighter way overweight lose the fight. But the other thing is with Paulo Coelho. Now, what I'm saying is it's a big deal. That was a sign of Paulo Coelho's whole career going downhill. So he shows up 10 over. At the time, a lot of us are thinking, wow, he might be as good as Anderson Silva. He might beat Anderson Silva. He shows up 10, 10 over, loses a Chael Sonnen. Guess what? He's never the same again. Something happened in his life. The guy had a traumatic life growing up in Brazil. He became not near the fighter. That was a telltale sign, 10 pounds over that something was wrong in Paulo Coelho's life. It didn't get fixed. He had some, some sort of mental issues and things he was going through. He never was the fighter he once was, and he fell from grace. He never he, be, he became lost in that conversation. The guy they used to mention as, hey, he's got the style. He's the guy who could beat Anderson Silva if they ever put him in UFC. Felt, relatively speaking, just fell off the map. Never at nowhere near the fighter. So anyway... This is why my subconscious brain early in the morning when you said, oh, what I, you said 185 for Polo Costa and I heard 195 and I apologize, but that's why. Oh, good. Um, so I'm going to um, do that's actually a perfect segue into uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, I'm going to call it um, characteristics of or qualities you know what defining what quality is um mm -hmm. and i know i'm this just go with me on this journey as i explain sure where my head's at about this um one of the keys to this fight in this matchup between um and I, i'm gonna when i when i say the brazilians names i'm gonna do my best to sound like my how my wife would present uh pronounce them um, cause you know, I, actually, people I, don't know that your wife is from Brazil and she's Brazilian. Yeah. And, and 
And that literally I have to, I hear the way she says things and it's very subtle. So she'll say, co- co- uh, co- Costa, Costa, Costa. Yeah. She said Costa. Because, um, um, so um, I'm hearing you pronounce the, uh, um, the, the other guy, the other Paolo guy. And that's um, um, the, the L and the H go, Leo, Leo, Paolo. Uh, Paulo Coelho. You kind of just swallow like Spanish, your... Just like Spanish, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's Paulo Coelho. But um, I, I don't want to distract us from um, what what I wanted to bring up about um, quality. And um, in this matchup between these two, uh, Adesanya and Costa, um, the, um, um, you've got a very uh, precision base. You, we, you know, we talk about precision a lot on the podcast. Adesanya is very precise in how he hits. So, you know, I'm looking forward to see how he does, the, you know, how his jabs take out that lead eye, you know, that, that front, that left looking eye um, and take away the power of uh, uh, Paulo. Um, there were, other, there were the other two fighters uh, on this card that did, did miss weight. They missed the weight by four pounds. And, You've done work with, um, or you know, uh, uh, Mike Dolce uh, pretty well, and I know he has an approach to weight cut and into you know he's a lot never, of things. He's with, never had Mike has never had a fighter miss weight. Amazing. Yeah. So, and, and what you're talking about that or that right there, that consistency. You know, we talk. I, you know, I talk about precision now. I want to you know talk about precision in the past. Now I want to talk about another quality. Um, in the fight sports, and that's consistency. And consistency, um, I'm going to use an example that's outside the fight business, and it's in the in the um, area of fine dining. Because um, um, one of the good friends of uh, Anthony Bourdain uh, was Eric Repair, uh, French. I cannot I cannot pronounce that. Um, and he has a restaurant um, there in Midtown. I've never been to it. Um, I would like Mid- to go. Midtown, New- Midtown, New York, Mid- near Midtown, Midtown Manhattan. Manhattan. Sorry, Manhattan. yes, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. And um, it's uh, Le Bernardine. All right. And every morning, um, there's a lot of chefs and a lot. Well, I should say line cooks and prep cooks from um, Central, Central and South America, um, and Mexico, and. Um, th- they approach their work with a level. I, I don't want to say precision here. I want to say consistency. The, the quality we're looking at is consistency. When you go in, just imagine thousands of meals, thousands of plates of food, and the ingredients for each one of them. Go in your kitchen, and every time you cook, when you cook, every time you cook, look at how much variation there is in your produce and in the and in your ingredients. And imagine being uh, one of these cooks, and they make those ingredients consistent. They're consistent in size, cut, weight, shape, texture. So every time they prepare that dish, it's consistent. And that's a big thing for these uh, big-time chefs that when they go and they start opening up all these restaurants. You know, and just like, um, you know, like your local cheesecake factory, you, know, you, you go in – the, what you get, that brand, that consistency, you know what it's going to be like. 
every time. And that gives you a sense of comfort. It gives you a sense of um, satisfaction, you know, that, oh, I, you know, oh, like this cup of coffee here that I'm drinking, you know, um, if I go in, I know, and if I order something, I'm, you know, and I know I'll get that same product every time, that consistency, all right? So in the preparation, you talk about Mike Dolce and his approach, and you said it immediately, because that's what we're talking about, that quality, which is a consistency. Um, You know, we're not, this is not to be confused with consistency of, of, uh, you don't know which punch is coming at you or, you know, a combination of kick, you know, kick and, and punch. Well, I'm talking about the preparation because that is a mark of professionalism. You know, you get into um, how do you become consistent um, in, in what you do and as part of, you know, in jujitsu, you know, what, what you should strive for is being consistent in terms of like, you know, every time I, every, every time I roll with Noah, I can expect he's not going to have, you know, he's not going to have bad breath. He's not going to, his gi's not going to smell. Um, he's not going to come in moody. You know, what is my consistency in terms of my actions and how I'm doing that? Um, but I want to just raise that with you because, uh, as you said, not being consistent, not having a consistent process. Because this is, this is one of my things that near and dear to my heart, which is, process approach you and i have um style differences about uh, about about um how we approach things you know talk about deliberate practice and all that this gets back to where uh, what you know having this discussion having a very deliberate process you know map it out map it out where it's like from start to finish you know exactly how it's going to be made you, you know or uh, how you're going to perform something and that consistency. Um, so I would think that, and, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts um, and, and what you've spoken and what your liberty of, of sharing of how you would go through um, and it can be a consistent process to, uh, to, to this issue of weight cutting um, and, and preparing the mind to go into an intense uh, five round fight. Well, again, it is a lot of it is emotional um, because, you know, first of all, your adrenals and your adrenaline. Right. A lot of people don't realize even in, in, in the world, people don't realize that they're draining their adrenals. Their anxiety on a micro level is creating all kinds of problems in their body. Right. Like even though they don't feel a fight or flight response, right? A fight or flight response would be an extreme amount of adrenaline. And we would all feel that. And if we had to lift the car or do something really strong for a 30 second, 60 second burst, we could, and we would would feel this incredible surge. That one's obvious. But when you have people that are anxious every day or they're hyper every day, or they're afraid every day, and they don't even realize it, right? Then you don't know what you don't know anymore. They just become so used to it, so numb to it, that they don't realize that they're draining their adrenals. Well, that can affect weight weight cutting. But the other thing that the reason that emotionality is a big factor in the weight cut is because a lot a lot of eating itself is emotional eating, right? Mm-hmm. Those of us that overeat and have a, and, and our relationship with food 
says a lot, a lot of times about our emotional health or our emotional clarity. It's just a fact of the matter that when you look at people eating a lot of junk or overeating, and I would include myself at different points in my life in this, but a lot of that is emotional eating. When people are stressed, especially if they're working from home or they're working somewhere where the food is nearby, right? They're going to, I mean, I'm sure there's studies out there that support that where they're going to eat more. It's no secret that the notion of comfort foods is a real thing. Food is a drug. Food is an, addic an addiction. When we're eating for some reason other than just nourishment, other than just to satisfy hunger, when we're eating for reasons of stress, of, of trauma, of fear, of things we're dealing with, of distraction, of comfort, those things are, they're, they're, they're very powerful and they affect fighters as well, as well as regular people. Fighters are normal people in that regard. So what? by the time you get to fight week and the coaches will say, well, it, it ha we had trouble, the, you know, the, the weight wasn't coming off. Well, the vast majority of the time, these fighters have 12 weeks. So if you just focus on the last couple of days and say, well, the weight didn't want to come off. It's like, okay, let's not focus on three days before the fight. Let's focus on the other 11 and a half weeks that you had to do the weight cut. Right. That's where the problem, the problem in preparation is not a lot of times the last two days or three days when the weight doesn't want to come off. That's not the that's not the key preparation usually. Usually the key preparation is the 11 weeks, the 11 and a half weeks before and there therein lies the problem where it might be an indicator of a lack of discipline by the fighter. Again, the fighter doesn't have the discipline at the dinner table or at the or eating lunch. Maybe the fighter is eating junk that he or she shouldn't be eating. That's what the scale is telling us like the secrets of the scale. The scale does not lie. You want to see when you go in, especially when you want to predict fights, you usually want to see the weigh-in. When you see something like you saw with Lennox Lewis and, and Hasim Rahman years ago, where Lennox Lewis had been, you know, the, 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 the world champion boxer, guy who beat Mike Tyson, he was the best out there. He showed up 10 or 11 pounds over his normal weight for a fight with Hasim Rahman. Hmm. That jumped out at us. That told a story. Guess what happened to Lennox Lewis when they went and fought when he was 11 pounds heavier than his normal weight? Take a big surprise what happened. He got knocked out by Hasim Rahman. He got knocked out. What did the scale tell us? He wasn't prepared. He was thinking about something else. What was the something else he was thinking about? It actually came out. He was shooting a movie, Ocean's Eleven, with oh, my goodness. And Brad Pitt. He was shooting some movie. His focus, it was like, it was almost as if Hey, this Hasim Rahman guy is not in my league. I can do this other stuff, and it won't matter. What was Mike Tyson? Now, Mike Tyson made weight because he's a smallish heavyweight, and the heavyweight limit's like 265, so he's a smaller heavyweight, 220, 225. But anyway, before his fight with Buster Douglas, back when all of us thought he was invincible, what was he doing before the fight? He was running around Japan distracted, chasing you know, chasing beautiful women and whatever. The stories came out later that he was like not taking Buster Douglas serious. He was sort of in party mode. He was doing a lot of stuff that you don't want fighters to do. So the scale will can in the body sometimes. Again, the body can be deceptive because it's kind of like lie detection. You know a lot about lie detection, Noah. You've been in, uh, you know, the accounting side where you look for, for fraud and other things. But 
with lie detection, you're looking for variance, right? You're not just looking for did they blink or did they look away? You're looking for a baseline. What's normal for the person, right? What's normal behavior for them? And you're looking for a combination of things, things that might be deviance or variance from their, you know, wait, they're, they're reacting much differently to the questions now. Their tone is different. They're, they're looking different. They're whatever. They're, they're hesitating more. You're looking for something that's off baseline. Well, the same thing with fighters. If, I, if you had Roy Big Country Nelson and he shows up with a gut to the fight, I'm not as worried because I <laughs> of Roy Big Country Nelson with the belly still knocking guys out and being impressive and being durable, right? But By the way, so he I, looks just like my half-brother. Yeah. I, I, I mean, so my, my half-brother, those two. I'm not saying they all have to show up svelte and beautiful because you have guys like Tim Sylvia who don't look great on the scale. You have guys like Roy Big Country Nelson. But by and large, fighters do have decent-looking bodies, sometimes spectacular, by and large. And when you see that, you're like, whoa, everybody, everybody can tell, like, wait, the preparation wasn't there. So, so what, I'm, what I'm saying here about, about the scale is, you know, and, and, and one thing you learn from, like, Mike Dolce, again, it's it, we're talking about, so you really want the fighters to be disciplined. Like, Mike Dolce, what was interesting with Mike Dolce with his fighters is, he was one of the relatively few nutrition coaches who's there with the fighter for four weeks before the fight. Five weeks. He's embedded four, five, six weeks before the fight with a lot of these guys. Not everybody, but a lot of those fighters, he was embedded with them. He was there cooking the food for them. Why? Because he wants to make sure that that athlete is eating really healthy food and they're doing it because of the athletes. Even though they're disciplined at fighting, they might not be disciplined in their eating. They're two different things. The person who is disciplined at fighting may not be disciplined at other areas of their life. It's compartmentalization. It's the people make mm -hmm. the assumption. Discipline a lot of times is specific to certain things. I am phenomenally disciplined, phenomenally exponentially at certain things. And then there are other things with organization and some other things that I've had to work very hard to improve at and I have and so I've, I've had to work on some of those weaknesses over the years that were like wait why don't I have the same level of discipline there and it's the same for fighters so Mike Dolce would come in and it's like well I can't have I know you know I know he worked for instance with BJ Penn you know BJ Penn is notorious for just kind of like winging it right I mean BJ in his prime was a handful but he wasn't you know, he wasn't disciplined with his diet. So a guy like that, you're really worried about him, like, or Rampage Jackson, he, Mike worked with him. These are people that, you know, Rampage Jackson with his admitted weakness for fast food, Miguel Torres, who was a buddy of mine who I trained with over the years, former world champion at one time, maybe the best 135 pounder on the planet. No, but Miguel had this fondness for like cheap Mexican food and, and fast food. And it's some eventually it will catch up with you because when you're when you're when you're going into jujitsu or wrestling, high level jujitsu, high level wrestling, high level MMA, you you almost have to think of it like there's imagine there's 150 boxes you can check. Right. When you're fighting this other fighter, you're not just fighting their mind. You're not just fighting their technique. You're not just fighting their spirit. You're not just fighting the level of coaching. There's a bunch of boxes you can check. And to me, to win, when you talk about preparation, Noah, to win, and this is any company as well, how many boxes can you check in such an ultra-competitive world where the stakes are so high, when you go into a cage 
where the stakes are so high, you want to be able to check as many boxes as you can. I had this conversation with a world champion in jiu-jitsu. Don't you want to – because a lot of them think, well, I'll just let the food thing go. I'm just so good. I'm like, wouldn't it be nice to check that box where you know psychologically for your confidence that my opponent doesn't work harder than me, my opponent doesn't have better coaches than me, my opponent's not stronger than me, my opponent's not faster than me, my opponent doesn't study more film than I do, my opponent doesn't want to win more than I do, my opponent doesn't discipline himself or herself at the dinner table, at the breakfast table like I do. Guess what that does for confidence? That's the strange way that confidence works when you're leading up to a fight and your mind will start to play tricks on you as you get close to the fight. And what's going to counteract that? What's going to counteract that is knowing in your heart they don't work harder than we do. They don't study harder than we do. They don't eat healthier than we do. But a lot of the fighters think that's a box they don't even think about, Noah. Or they don't have the discipline or they don't have the people or they don't have the knowledge around them. So that's a blind spot for a lot of them. And the scale tells us about that blind spot. It tells us about a lack of discipline somewhere. It tells us, as you're saying, about a lack of preparation or a lack of consistency. It tells us that maybe they're the arrogant athlete that thinks in 2020, well, I can eat the crap food. I'm just that good and I can still win. Because a lot of people think, well, that's a corner I can cut. I've been winning, so what? And the point of, to me, the point I make to athletes is, well, you are the best, but why not be better? Your job is to be the best you can be, not even if you are unbeaten right now and you're eating fast food. But eventually, don't you want to be the best you can be? Don't you want to honor your body? Don't you want to think about longevity? Because even if you're winning now, don't you want to think about longevity? You're as good as your health, and you want your body, you know, if you have a long career like a guy like Vitor Belfort, you know, that's a lot more money when you can last 20 years in the fight game, which is rare, but like a Vitor Belfort or, you know, uh, or, or even a, a Floyd Mayweather. When you can last that long, well, if you can take care of your body, take care of your vessel, and that nutrition is a huge thing in there. So it's, you know, as you said, it is a it is a very telltale thing that, and that doesn't mean we all, I want to impress this on everybody. That does not mean that we all have to be spelt, whatever, you know, we're all made different. We're not all made to be six pack abs and that's misleading. And we're even seeing that Noah, that's one of the subplots of this fight with Stylebender and Paulo, uh, Paulo, 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 Paulo. Paolo, Paolo uh, Costa. Costa, Costa. One of the subplots is if you had never seen either guy fight, it looks like uh, it looks like Israel Adesanya is going to be a sacrificial lamb. If you had never seen either guy fight, I mean, when you line them up head to head and you look at the the Adonis, I mean, there should be a statue of Paolo Paolo Costa. (laughs) I got you messed up. Sorry, sorry. No, it's Paolo. Just say it how you normally say it. Well, there should be a statue of that. That guy's an Adonis. That guy looks the part, right? I mean, he says bodybuilder versus some skinny tall guy. Yeah. Now, Adesanya fits that that ilk we've seen so much, that Anderson Silva kind of frame. But I tell you, this is what this, you know, this is what really, because when I watch old Israel Adesanya fights, like he really, 
he he is very unorthodox. Like he throws punches from weird angles. I mean, his tech, even if you look at him, kind of reminds me of John Jones. He's got way better technique than John Jones does. But I'm just saying, it's not this picturesque. Like when Conor McGregor throws a punch, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's fluid. It's it's super efficient. Like when Conor punches and the, even the follow through, it's beautiful, right? I mean, it really is. Even GSP, when GSP throws his jab, it's pretty to watch, man. It's pretty to watch that. Vitor Belfort, when you watch Vitor Belfort's hands, it's pretty to watch. Even Anderson Silva. Anderson Silva, when he was doing his stuff, when he's serious, it's pretty to watch. It's like, wow. You're watching, like Joe Rogan would say, you're watching a video game. When Israel throws, it's it's not that pretty. It's But but it's amazing how effective, how, how awesome it is. Like, he hits everything. He's very precise. But it doesn't look like textbook, technical, beautiful, pretty. It looks like I can see where some people would underestimate him, even though he's the champion or how awesome he is, because he 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 makes it look pretty easy. But it's not like even Demetrius Johnson. When you watch Demetrius Johnson move, it's it's very economical. It's like no wasted motion. I mean, Israel's doing like he's got. He is so brilliant that he's doing like he is a style bender and that he's kind of, he's just taking it and completely making it his own. He's got a style that's nobody like, so again, style bender is a great name. It's very fitting to his essence and his ethos. He has a style that is all his own. He really does like the things he does. And he reminds me of Anderson Silva in that regard, in that his unpredictability works to his advantage. If you're his opponent, you may think you know exactly which Israel Adesanya will show up, but he's so confident, he's so in the moment, he's so improvisational that, and he's got those limbs that allow him to do a lot of things that you don't really know what he's going to do next because in the moment he can throw something from a very weird angle that you don't expect. So he can be hard to prepare for because he's almost like Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee used to say, the style of no style. He's the style of no style. The things you think he's going to do, he could do something totally different against uh, uh, one against the best in the world and win. So he's ve- he's very it's very easy even for me when I watch old tape of, of Israel Adesanya to underestimate him and think, well, as he starts to fight better fighters, they'll you know expose him. Now, by the way, if there is a guy, and it's you know these are both unbeaten guys. If there's a guy to beat him, it is, even on paper, it's Paulo Costa. It, this fight is going to, I think, be determined by Costa's um, durability. If he can take the shots of Adesanya and keep coming, this will be, I think, a this becomes a really interesting fight, and, it could, and, and Costa could definitely win this fight. Maybe not even an upset. Maybe he just wins the fight. It really is because Costa is very hittable. He's very hittable. He throws a high volume. He gets hit a lot. Yeah, he, he does he take just, a lot of he, punches. He dares you to hit him. He mm-hmm. dares you. And it's going to be interesting to see because Adesanya fought Yoel Romero in a very boring fight. And Yoel Romero is the closest thing to to Paulo Costa that we've seen against Israel Sunday. So if we're looking and we're saying, well, how would this fight play out? We could look to the Yoel Romero fight. And that might give us clues. That fight between Adesanya and Romero was a very boring fight. There were criticisms of, hey, Adesanya, you took it 
you know, you just coasted, you took it um, too easy. Why weren't you more aggressive? But the difference between Romero and Kostya is Kostya is younger, right? So he's younger. He throws a lot more volume than Romero. Romero is really a counterfighter. He's really a counterfighter. So that can make fights boring because Romero's waiting on Adesanya and Adesanya is deciding, well, I'll just take my time with you and win, you know, just hit you with some light punches, out volume you, play it safe and win the fight. You can't do that with Costa because Costa forces the action. Costa comes at you and says, no, 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 no. How about one of us gets knocked out? Probably you. Costa's thinking it's going to be you. He right. does it. He puts so much pressure that you he's going to force the fight in a way that Romero didn't. He's going to take his chances. Um, let me take a step back and um, go back to uh, what you said about uh, Mike Dolce and uh, the as far as uh, uh, timing of when he gets involved or, or when, you know, he got involved with, uh, with uh, these fighters on their, on their weight cuts. You said it's only four to five weeks in. I thought, and this is kind of a general idea. I thought that he would have been in there okay, wait, 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 two to three months prior. Okay. He was working with them. He probably had written out their nutrition program. But he embeds with them and goes, not all of them, but certain fighters. He, some of them, he might just write a nutrition program. He might follow up with them. Nowadays, in the age of technology, he can check in with them constantly. I don't know if he's as embedded. I don't know. It may be more of a everyday conversations, multiple conversations. I don't know. But I know that in the past, for UFC, for certain fighters, he would embed with them weeks before the fight. He probably had written their nutrition program 12 weeks out at least and he was probably talking to them you know regularly you know um i i i go back to him and i want to and I'm, i keep bringing that this topic back up because you know you were you know we're talking about the consistent and that's a hallmark uh, the consistent uh, approach to to weight cut it, you know because you just like you cannot cram for a marathon you know you cannot cram for a weight cut and what, you know, some guys say, oh, I'll just wing it. You know, I'll, just, I'll, I'll drop all the weight. There's a, there's a Houston-based fighter, or Texas-based, it may not be Houston, uh, that had a lot of weight cut problems. Um, he was really big a few years ago. I cannot remember his name. Um, but, um, you know, every time we saw him, um, you know, he'd miss, he'd miss weight. He'd miss weight. He'd miss weight. And uh, Dana White got really, really fed up with him. Um, anyways, I can't think of him. But you see certain fighters like, why? You know, they're missing. It's so obvious, you know, like they're missing a huge part of yeah. greatness. Like there's a major block to greatness for them. And I remember watching one of these, uh, I don't know if it's a, uh, you know, UFC video uh, uh, you know, they, where they follow the fighters. But I do remember a story about, uh, I think it was Mike Dolce or one of his coaches catching that way, that, that fighter, Adam McDonald's. Cat, caught him Adam McDonald's eating cheeseburgers and, and garbage. And he wasn't making his weight. You know, he, he's had a history of that. And I'm thinking it's the same fighter that's out of Houston. And obviously, you know, they're, Whenever Mike Dolce encounters this kind of person, 
who doesn't want to really pay that price, um, you know, that's the challenge. That is the, if you want to really earn your money. You want to really be a game changer, be that person who can go in there and get and, and put your hooks in that fighter's mind to change them. There's a, there's a heavyweight recently and another one out of Houston. You know, Houston's got some great restaurants. I'm from Houston. The food, it's a food culture, but a lot of that food culture is bad food. Okay. Um, um, I've never been a fan of fast food, but I know a lot of guys are. And there's this uh, big heavyweight uh, fighter. He recently he fought and, um, and he, uh, he's been losing. He's, he's kind of changed his approach um, on, on, um, on weight loss. Again, I cannot remember a name this morning. Cannot remember his name. Um, I wish I could remember these two fighters names. Um, but, um, it just strikes me as, um, you know, what's the secret of all this and, uh, of it. And it's not just, you know, like someone coming in and cooking for you, but it's well, whenever let's, you let's, get, let's, let me finish this off. Do it. It's yeah. when you get to the, it's, it's, it's those triggering events that where they go off the where they go off the recipe, they go off plan. That's that's the real trick of it. It's not like the, you know, okay, here's your three square or four square or five square meals. It's, you know, it's when they go off plan and and helping them there and helping them there. But what were you going to say? I'm sorry, I just wanted to if, make that point. If people eat when they're stressed. Right. And they eat more. Well, as you get closer to a fight, they're going to eat even more because as you get closer to a fight, it gets more stressful. Right. Yeah. The thing, the thing that made the thing that made Dolce very interesting, too, is Dolce would adapt to his athletes. So if he was working with, I think, Big Fit Silva, um, the heavyweight, and he would he would he would, you know, make him Brazilian food. So it's it, very smart. And I'm a big fan of that, which is you don't try to put what you eat necessarily on the athlete. You find if the guy grew up with Southern home cooking, then you work your way around that. If Johnny Hendricks eats a lot That's of him. Johnny Hendricks. venison. Yeah. If, if you have, if you eat a lot of venison and elk, like, like uh, Johnny Hendricks did and he worked with him, then you're going to have, you're going to work more with sort of that meat and potatoes guy. You're going to work with Bigfoot Silva and his Brazilian, his Brazilian food, you know, but what I was going to say, you know, too, is that, um, again, I lost my train of thought. That was such a good thought I had there too. Um, it's, it, it really is like, this really is a big thing because if you look, you've never had a world, like there's never been a phenomenal fighter that was consistently overweight. There's just never been one. There's a reason for that. Like there's never been like, Hey, this person, first of all, you can't, you can't win the title. Like that's how, that's why it's so like when it's a title fight, that's why it's so disrespectful because at the moment you're overweight, you are denying that other fighter the chance, you know, especially if they're the challenger, you would be denying them the chance to be a world champion. Now think about how crazy that is under the current commission rules, the standard rules that govern the sport. You who show up over, you know, if you're the number one challenger, you're getting your shot at the title and you beat the champion, you could beat them for, you know, the dominate them. You don't get the title like that. How That is like the most disrespectful thing that you put all the work in. You can get your payday. 
You can get the oh, glory. Yeah. You can get the media headlines. But you would not get. So that would be a big problem there, right? Think of the bummer. Think of the bummer if it when it happens in title fights. Think of the bummer for the other fighter who would who doesn't get to win get win a title who finds out the night before he or she you know they didn't make weight. You make so a great point there. Fight. Now, yeah. So it's very disrespectful where there's supposed to be a code amongst other. Even though we're fighting, there's normally a respect between parties. I mean, usually it's very essential um, that we have a respect for what the other. It's kind of like when you see fighters kill other fighters in the rare times when it's happened. I think it's happened 1,200 or so times in professional boxing since 1890 something. There's been like 1,200 or some fatalities in professional boxing. Um, there might even wow. been more. That's just professional body. MMA has very, very few so far because MMA comes from more of the wrestling sport where there's a lot more known about work. People who come from wrestling sports know a lot more about the weight cuts than boxers do in general. That's just mm. now, again, there's a lot of wrestlers that don't know weight cutting. There's a ton of them. There's a hierarchy there, but a lot of wrestlers know weight cutting. Noah, what's interesting is you said, I think you said that four people are overweight for this card in in in, in Fight Island. Uh, I, uh, there 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 are uh, two uh, there are two fights, and I think there are three fighters, and they're all um, now, four I'm pounds overweight. I'm going to make a generalization. I'm going to make a generalization, and I could be wrong. But what's interesting is when it comes to weight cutting traditionally. The Americans have been, as, as much as we have many people here who don't know, the Americans have been way better at weight cutting than almost everybody else. The Americans, really? the Russians, they do weight cutting better. There are other countries, I won't say the names, that don't do. So a lot of people are trying to learn like what Mike Dolce and some of the other elite you know, nutrition coaches out there have done with, because the Americans really do know, and the Russians, you know, they – they know weight cutting a lot better, sort of with now when I talk about weight cutting, I'm not just talking about the day to day eating. I'm talking about the, the fight week and the and the, you know, the, the distilled water tricks and things like that. You have other countries that, 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 that are that playing catch up and they've gotten better because there's been a lot of cross pollination and training. But but so when you start going to maybe some of these events, I don't know. I haven't looked at that. But in general, when you go, the more you have more foreign fighters on a card, like with, you know, in Fight Island too, some of those guys on the undercard, they're bringing them, they're maybe not as high level, but they make sense regionally, right? They're not, you know, we see UFC do that where they go into a region and there's yeah. some fighters on the card that, there's some fighters on the card and some of those, when they go to certain countries that probably would never be on a marquee card. They're never going to make it, you know, probably on a, they're not going to be a household name, but because it's more of a regional fight, and the odds of an overweight uh, fighter then, when you, you have people from different countries and they're they're not they high, high, high level, they kind of got in because they're a regional fighter and the UFC likes to have some of the you know more regional fighters on those cards. Well, you have the odds, I, I would say, that go up that someone's overweight because why? Because you have less professionalism. The more you go down the ladder, there's a hierarchy there, you're going to have less professionalism. When you look at when you look at, again, this really boils down to, it boils down to, so th this is what I was going to say about food. Mm -hmm. You know, food is probably the strongest addiction, um, um, Noah. It, you, we would be hard-pressed to find, other than drug addicts, something that's more addictive to people. We're talking about fighters that will train three, four times a day and go through fire to win. 
but can't win at the dinner table. That's normal. It is an addiction unlike any other. I mean, you know, and 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 so when you start getting, um, you know, that, that when you start working with a fighter, the first thing you have to do. This is what I was going to say. The first thing you have to do when you're sort of roto rootering the mindset of this fighter, because this is a mental thing. This uh, this addiction to fighting is not just physical. Physiologically, the food, the, the body needs certain nutrients and certain calories to do its thing. But a lot of the fighting and the overeating, that is mental. That is a met there is a the, the battle to be won there is mental, not just physical. Okay. We you can you can have an addiction to sugar where your body is screaming at you, ah, oh, five alarm fire, get me sugar, because your your it, it, your glucose and everything else becomes so that can be a physical addiction, but a lot of it's mental. So what I would the one thing I would be if I was working with a fighter and they were resistant, they were eating crap, I would work first and foremost on the assumption that, well, Frank. I don't need to do that right now. My performances are really good. I'm winning. So that's a very common assumption we come up against, which is I, I don't need to worry about that box <clears throat> later. Maybe maybe when I get older, maybe when I'm 35 and I kind of have to do it and my body's slowing down, I'll kicking the can down the road. I'll take care of that. That's a very common mindset. Yeah, you know, I, I I'm, I'll be able to make the weight with what I'm eating now. Thanks, Frank. But when I'm ready... When I'm 35, I'll get back to you, you know, because I work with people on weight cutting too. I've been phenomenal. I've had, you know, what, 300? Yep. I've had 300 and some, you know, uh, jujitsu and wrestling and submission grappling matches, 300 and some. I've had to make weight for those 300 and some matches, right? The only time I was ever overweight was my ninth grade year wrestling at Calvert Hall in Baltimore. And I was new. I was a rookie, and they put me against the number one guy in the state. They threw me. I was on the junior varsity. They put me to varsity. They said, Frank, we want you to face the number one guy in the state. I had only wrestled a couple months, literally a couple months. Okay, imagine you're wrestling a couple months of your life, okay? But you're really good. I was I was a natural. I was really good for – I was a natural at like, hey, a couple months in, they were like, wow, this guy's going to be really good. That's how they looked at me. So they, they were like, Frank, you're a tough kid. Here's a kid who's been wrestling like half of his life. He's number one in the state, and you're going to face him. And and you're objective. I'm like, well, I'm thinking rationally, like, what are the odds I'm going to beat? I mean, I've only been doing this a couple months. This guy's this other kid's been doing this for years, and he's phenomenal. And he's a senior, and he's a senior, and I'm a freshman. Like, I'm knowing yeah. rationally. I'm a mentally tough guy, but I'm knowing rationally. I'm not going to win. Like, I know rationally in my heart. Like, now I'm committing the cardinal sin of sports now, which is like, don't beat yourself. Well, I was already beaten. I was like, I'm not going to beat this. This kid's like the best, you know, the best out there and whatever. So what did I do? I intentionally made myself overweight. I went to lunch. Again, mental. Why was I overweight for that fight, for that wrestling match? No, against number one kid in the state. Because I was beaten where? Mentally. Because I didn't believe I would beat him. And my coaches were saying, well, Frank, you don't have to beat him. Just don't get pinned. You don't get pinned. They only get five points instead of six. So we just don't want you to get pinned. But I knew I wasn't going to win. I was intimidated. I was out of my league. I had not. I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the skill to back it up. And guess what, Noah? I was overweight. And guess who I let down when I was overweight? The most of all, my team. Because wrestling is a team sport as well. And I let them down. So one thing is with the fighters, 
It's very common. Well, you know, not right now. I'm still winning. I feel good. I'm having good performance. I'm having good recovery. They can have way better recovery, way better mind clarity, way better hormone, way, way less inflammation in the body if they ate healthy, way better endurance a lot of times if you eat healthy. But they don't know what they don't know, and they're so addicted. So that's one big one. The other one would be, um, again, what are the stresses in their life? What's stressing them? You have to work with them, and let, and they have to be aware of the connection because a lot of people don't know that they're emotional eating. They don't know that they're overeating. They don't know that, right? And they they don't know that that a lot of times they could eat the same food that they're already eating, but if they made some tinkers with the oils and some of the other fats and some of the processed food, just little tinkers, they didn't know that they could still eat tacos for their fight. Like they think they got to give up tacos. It's like, no, you don't actually have to give up tacos. You don't have to give up your pasta or your potatoes we just have to change the way we cook them and eliminate some things, right? So they're they're thinking like extreme, like, well, if you're going to make me eat healthy, it's going to be this extreme thing, and I'm not going to be able to eat the Mexican food that I like or the burgers or the whatever. Now, I wouldn't rec- highly recommend people that, but the reality is you can't go and take a Frank Forza diet and put it on these fighters. You have to meet them halfway where they are. And so if they like jambalaya – your job is Mike Dolce or Frank Forza. Your job is to find a jambalaya that maybe they can't eat as much, but what's the healthiest version that we can make? A lot of times you can improve that dramatically, you know? So if they're eating oatmeal, how do you make that oatmeal? So the fighter needs to realize, listen, you can still eat a lot of those foods. We're just going to teach you to prepare them. And the end result is you're going to be a lot healthier than you are and you're going to walk around in a lower weight. You're not going to have to lose as much weight because there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, toxins and 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 gook and oils, hidden oils and hidden sugars and hidden salts in foods that pack those pounds on over a 12-week thing and makes your body fight itself. So a lot of fighters just don't realize that you don't know what you don't know. They don't realize like, bro, you can still eat Mexican. You you might have to do a little. I would say this, Noah. If someone's serious about weight cutting and weight loss you do have to learn to do more food prep. It might not be 45 minutes, an hour a day, but there has to be some food prep. A lot of people are lazy about food prep, whether it be learning how to cook those tacos the right way, whether it be having a backpack every day. Like this is one thing I would say for everybody out there. If you want to eat healthy, you got to get with the nutrition coach or somebody that you trust and you got to have a backpack full of food that you take with you. You can't wait for yourself to be hungry and then you're what, just whatever fast food restaurant is on what corner. You need to have a war chest of food sometimes in that backpack so that if you're if you hit a weak moment, you have at least at the very least the lesser of evils in your backpack where you've got the nuts, you've got the apples, you've got the 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 fruit. You've got the nutrition bar. Very few of them I trust, but you've got one of those. You've got the water. You've got the lemon, whatever. You need to have those because hunger can strike. And if you're not ready with your food prep, with your backpack, with your emergency foods, then you're going to succumb to what's convenient and what's close and what's immediate. And usually that's going to be fast food. Yeah. Yeah. For a lot of people, that's the case. Um, sorry for the background noise. You know, we're no school at home means um, when they hit break, they run downstairs and 
you know, kids will be kids. Um, so, uh, but uh, um, <clears throat> the other fighter that I was trying to remember, his name is Derek Lewis. And he's, uh, you know, his last fight, he, he was, he had trimmed up quite a bit. Um, so maybe, um, you know, some of that is taken to heart with what's going well, on with him. It's interesting because he's at a weight class, 265, where it's very weird, Noah, that they have, you know, when you're up on the higher end of that, like guys like Brock Lesnar, they have to actually cut weight. It's kind of crazy. Most heavyweights don't have to cut, right? Yeah. You know, you were talking about, uh, you gave me an, an insight to part of uh, this, uh, of the fight sports I, I hadn't considered before, which is, for you to sign, you know, if, if you're a, um, a title contender and you want to work your way up, one of the, one of the um, factors in your decision-making is, like you said, um, will my opponent show up um, ready to fight? You know, if you have a history of not making weight, um, your opponents are like, I, I don't know if I want to fight this person. Um, because there's going to be an asterisk, just like there is. If you go on the site today, you'll see an asterisk besides the names that didn't make the the weight cut. Um, And, um, yeah, it's nice to get 20% of their purse, but, uh, I mean, yeah, that's that's a consolation to to what really is going on, which is um, now you're tainted, you know, the record is tainted. um, Yeah. So anyways, hey, um, really really quick, let me, let me, yeah, we got to wrap up here. Part of the reason that there's multiple reasons that an opponent gets upset when, when their other fighter is overweight. And one of the reasons too, is the reason that some fighters take offense and get pissed when the other person's overweight it, you know, again, they don't get, they might not get the title, but the other thing is, and they do get the 20%, right? They get the 20% extra money because your opponent's overweight. So the commission gives you 20% of their purse. But the interesting thing is that, You're pissed, too, because you suffered and you sacrificed to make the weight. It's really it's that it's like, hey, I suffered and I sacrificed and I went without to make the weight. And it was tough. And I did that. And you didn't. And so the fighter gets mad because sometimes the fighter thinks the one who did make weight is thinking, hey, you wanted to save your energy. You wanted to be fresher. You didn't want to make the sacrifice so you can have more energy. So you mm-hmm. can be heavier than me. That's the way they think very primarily. Like, wait, you think that you're going to have an advantage. You were intentionally overweight. Like, they don't just think it's because you're mentally weak. Some of them, you know, a lot of them do. But it's a paradox. On the one hand, when your opponent's overweight, you're thinking he or she is mentally weak. They don't want it as much as I do. Now I know I'm going to win. They're not as prepared as I am. Yeah, that's part of that. The other part of that is, wait, the paradox is I suffered. I sacrificed. I went without. And now you're you're going to try to show up with an advantage because you didn't want to go through the fire to make the weight and sacrifice. And now you want to try to have a little extra energy than me so you can win and you can use your extra energy on fight night. Yeah. Right. So there's the that's part of the outrage and the psychology of why. Because a lot of people may look like what's a big deal of a pound and a half. Someone's a pound and a half over two and a half over. Is that even significant to the result? Big deal, big whoop. You know, it's if you can't beat up a guy that's two pounds heavier than you, what what are you even doing in the sport, right? 
But it's what, again, there's a lot of symbolism in this sport. And at the end of the day, when you talk about the martial arts part, right, even though we see all the trash talking in the martial arts, mean, I shouldn't say all of it, but there's quite a bit of it, right, at the high level. We see quite a bit of it with the Colby Covingtons and, and, and Conor McGregor's, and, and some of it's entertaining. By and large, though, this is one thing we have to, we have to remember. By and large, whether we're talking about boxing, Muay Thai, MMA, there's not that much trash talking by and large. If you look at a hundred, if you looked at a hundred percent, it's really only probably less than 10% that are doing the trash talking, right? Most people are not, most fighters actually are not good at trash talking and they're not trash talking. But if you look beneath that, there still is that ethos there of sort of those values of honor and like, you know, all of the high values deep down, even the fighters that are talking trash deep down, they still part of them likes those values. And it's like, thank God for martial arts to make me better than I otherwise would be. We all still care about like respect. We, we do deep down. Some people may not be good at it and they may they may say, well, I want to make money is more important than that. But deep down, we all still connect to those values of, uh, you know, those higher values. We're in martial arts because of the people building aspect, because of some of the noble values that we hope will rub off on us. Even though we fall short, we're hoping they rub off on us. So there's kind of a code between fighters, which is still, hey, even though I want to win, you want to win. I know that you work hard. I know you're forcing me to be better. After this fight, maybe we even train together. If I see you in the hotel, I see you around. Hey, respect to you because I know how hard you work. I know that you... You, you live a lot of these values too. I know that you have a family like I have a family. I know that you know how hard this life is, how dangerous it is, how we could be one, one fight away from not, not fighting anymore and something ends our career, right? So there's always that undercurrent for most fighters that is a deep respect for the other person. And when the weight is not made, it compromises that respect. It compromises that code. You know, which is like, hey, we're going to go out there and fight each other or whatever. But normally, most fighters deep down after the fight, they want to be like, hey, good fight. I respect you. You gave it. You, you Thank you. You pushed me. How's your family? How's your this? I like the way you fight. There's a lot of that. But when we get close to a fight, a lot of times a lot of fighters have to demonize the other because they're scared. We have to. A lot of times we demonize our opponents, not because we dislike them. There's still that code, but we're... We have to do what we have to do to go into a cage where the consequences are high. We have to put our mind where we have to put it. So for that, for a couple of hours or a couple of days, there may be all this tension. But usually deep down, there's a deep respect. And not making the weight compromises that respect. Because it's saying, bro, I thought you were the real deal. I thought you were the real core. I thought you were built like I am to be professional, to go through the suffering, to go through the sacrifice and make the weight. And you didn't. Well, I'm having questions about you. I'm having questions about your commitment now, your preparation, how much you want it, your, how strong your mind is. I'm having questions. I'm losing respect for you. That's what happens for a lot of fighters. So anyway, we got to get going. We, act, we have a big day to get going. This is, a, this is a great topic. I hope we have 15 people watching this. But this is something that that you know, 150,000 should watch because there's a lot we, of. Uh, lot we of just touched stuff. on like literally, you and I did not plan this. What what we said today, neither of us planned this. 
but it, it's it's all in the prep work. Yeah, yeah, I got to get going. It is Friday. I do have a do have some uh, commitments to hit um, next, so I gotta um, I gotta get moving here. We started uh, about ten minutes late, and then we ran over about fifteen minutes, but that's good. Um, really important topic here about uh, about. Uh, it's um, fighting, fight sports. It's completely spontaneous. Yeah, People yeah. Watching. This, yeah. There's a magic in what we did. Completely spontaneous. That's what Absolutely. years. That's what years of prep and consistency to tie to run full circle. What yes. does preparation? Years and years of preparation and consistency look like. It looks like the spontaneity we just dropped in an hour and whatever. And that's pretty good. Pretty good episode. So that's what you get from you can improvise whenever you do all the underlying hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Made it look easy. Well, um, well maybe we can do one, another one of these in 24 hours or, or so. Um, maybe buddy. Let, let, we got, we got some let, catching up to do. It's, uh, we do, uh, we do. it's, uh, uh, you know, I finally figured out where I knew what, what week of the year it is. Cause on my, um, uh, uh, Apple calendar has week and this is week 39. So, I know we're a couple of episodes below that, but this has been a great episode of Everyman BJJ, you and I. Uh, Jordan, um, you know, we bring him in, but he trains in the, he trains in the evenings and the and the during the day, so we know that he he's not available um, at this time. But um, Frank, I appreciate your time today. Um, yeah, no, have a great day, man. Thank you. You too. Let's look, looking forward to this big fight. All right, take care. You bet. Bye. That's it for today's episode of Everyman BJJ. Thanks for listening. Look for new episodes of Everyman BJJ every week, wherever you get your podcast or at everymanbjj.com. <laughs>